Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. From the perspective of hindsight, Hattin appears inevitable. By 1187, Saladin had disposed of his main Muslim rivals and could concentrate entirely on the jihad against the Crusader states. Moreover, the resources of his massive empire were overwhelming. Yet placing Hattin in the context of the events of the 1170s and 1180s allows us to come to a different interpretation. At Hattin, the field army of Jerusalem had shown itself to be just as formidable a fighting force as it had ever been. Its fighting march formation had been effective for most of the battle. It took Saladin's massive numerical superiority to finally swamp it. Furthermore, the Franks' discipline and cohesion had held together under the most intense pressure, only breaking down after Saladin had pushed the army to the very brink of defeat. The Frankish elite troops, the knights, had charged repeatedly and continued fighting right to the end. Similarly, the Kingdom of Jerusalem's strategy of dogged defense of its frontiers was not doomed to failure. Beginning in 1180, Saladin's annual invasions had pummeled the kingdom. Each time, the Franks had managed to repel him. More importantly, they had prevented the Kurdish warlord from making any major territorial gains. The Crusader states had faced similar situations before, such as the period from 1110 to 1120, when the Seljuk sultans had inspired and organized assaults by large armies almost every year. The Franks might have been hoping that if they could just hang on, Saladin's warlord empire would eventually collapse in dynastic infighting after his death. The pressure would then be relieved, the strategic balance righted, and the Franks perhaps even returned to the offensive. After all, this was what happened with the Seljuks and the Zengids. Hattin put an abrupt and permanent end to this frontier strategy. The Franks could not afford a defeat on such a scale because of their fundamental and insurmountable problem of manpower. To create the grand army that was annihilated at Hattin, Jerusalem's commanders had mobilized every man with even a modicum of military training. Moreover, they had stripped the walled cities and castles of their garrisons. The kingdom now stood defenseless before Saladin's victorious host. Saladin understood that the kingdom of Jerusalem lay at his mercy, but he also realized that in order to make Hattin a decisive battle that would bring the counter-crusade to a successful conclusion, he would need to take all of the Franks' fortresses and walled cities, particularly the ports on the Palestinian coast that were the economic engines of the kingdom as well as the gateways for new crusading armies coming from Europe. Although these strong places had been emptied of most of their fighting men, Saladin feared that their Christian inhabitants would resist with fanatical desperation, even for the warlord's powerful, victorious army. Methodically conquering all of the cities would be very costly and above all take time. And time for Saladin was limited because Hattin would invariably provoke a powerful reaction in Europe. Saladin's ingenious solution to this daunting problem was to offer generous terms of surrender and in particular to extend every consideration to the surviving Frankish leaders. Even when we take the considerable propaganda that surrounds him into account, Saladin still emerges as a man capable of astoundingly humanitarian impulses. 
in an age of bitter holy war, his policy of mercy was unheard of. It helped lay the foundations for Saladin's later reputation for kindness and courtesy. The Kurdish warlord immediately put his policy into practice. When the citadel of Tiberias capitulated, he allowed the Countess Ashiva and her household to depart freely. On July 9th, one of the greatest prizes in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the port city of Acre, surrendered. Then, when Saladin and his army marched deeper into the kingdom in the following weeks and months, city after city and castle after castle capitulated to them. By September, Saladin felt ready to tackle Jerusalem. He summoned its citizens and offered them astonishingly generous terms of surrender. But the Jerusalemites rejected them. According to one Christian source, they replied that if it pleased God, they would never surrender the city where God had shed his blood for them to Saracens under such terms. When Saladin saw and heard their answer, he swore he could never accept Jerusalem by treaty, but instead would take it by force. On September 20th, 1187, Saladin appeared before Jerusalem's walls and opened a siege. The people resisted fiercely under the leadership of Balian of Ibelin, one of the few great lords who had escaped the disaster of Hattin. It was not until September 29th that Muslim sappers managed to open a breach in the walls. Saladin was prepared to massacre the citizens. However, Balian then threatened to destroy everything within the walls, including the Muslim shrines on the Temple Mount. In the end, Saladin agreed to allow any Jerusalemites who could pay a ransom to go free. Eventually, Balian of Ibelin and Patriarch Heraclius led three long columns of Frankish refugees to the coast of Palestine. On October 2nd, Saladin entered Jerusalem. Some of his soldiers scaled the Dome of the Rock and toppled the great cross that the Crusaders had placed on its top. A week later, the Adan, the Islamic call to prayer, sang out from the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But there were other, even more important sites of Frankish resistance in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. In late August, the powerfully fortified port of Ascalon had resisted so obstinately that Saladin had been compelled to resort to a ruse. He brought out King Guy de Lusignan and offered to free him if he could persuade the citizens of Ascalon to capitulate. But Guy's exhortations were met with derision, and Saladin was forced to take Ascalon by storm. In the interior of the kingdom, the great castles of Montréal and Kerak and Outre-Jordan, as well as Hospitaller-held Belvoir and Templar-held Safed in Galilee, obstinately held out even in the absence of any field army to relieve them. But the most consequential holdout was the port of Tyre. Many of the survivors of Hattin had taken refuge there. Moreover, they came under the inspiring and capable leadership of a great Italian nobleman, Conrad of Montferrat, who had arrived in the kingdom of Jerusalem after Hattin. Conrad was the brother of the late William Longsword, first husband of Sibylla and father of the dead child king Baldwin V. He therefore could make a claim on the throne of Jerusalem, one which he strengthened by marrying the princess Isabella, Sibylla's sister and rival heiress. Despite all of Saladin's efforts, Tyre could not be taken. Meanwhile, in Europe, the reaction that Saladin feared would be provoked by Hattin was quickly gaining force and speed. In August 1187, Archbishop Josias of Tyre had gone to Europe to bring word of Hattin and to seek military aid for the Franks. The news of Hattin rocked Europe. When told of the disaster, Pope Urban III died of shock. 
His successors, Gregory VIII and Clement III, immediately called for a new crusade to retake Jerusalem. This crusade was preached everywhere with great fervor. In the sermons, Saladin was depicted as the archenemy of Christianity, the profane, impious, and cruel Antichrist, the dog of Babylon, the son of perdition. With the crusading fire now reignited and burning more fiercely than ever before, the leading monarchs of Christendom could not ignore the call to take up the cross. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa was the first to set off on what came to be called the Third Crusade. In May 1189, he departed for the Middle East at the head of a powerful army of 15,000 German soldiers. The kings of England and France also took up the cross. However, their mutual hostilities significantly delayed them. It was not until July 4, 1190, precisely three years after Hattin, that King Richard I, the Lionheart of England, and King Philip II Augustus of France left Vézelay together for the east. Their armies would form the heart of the Third Crusade. In addition to these major forces, contingents from all over Europe were on the move. In the summer of 1188, Saladin knew that his window of opportunity to secure the Kingdom of Jerusalem before the arrival of the Crusade was rapidly closing. In fact, the spring sailing season, the Passagium Vernale, had already brought the first wave of European crusaders to the coast of Palestine. Saladin now decided to set free Guy de Lusignan. This move was meant to provoke infighting among the Franks, especially the diehards at Tyre. Although disgraced and gravely weakened by the debacle of Hattin, Guy was still the consecrated king of Jerusalem. Therefore, he still enjoyed residual loyalty among many Franks. Saladin's move, however, immediately backfired, for Guy de Lusignan now demonstrated the determination, political acumen, and military skills that were so conspicuously absent at Hattin. A condition of his release was that he go into exile overseas. Guy duly boarded a vessel, sailed to the island of Ruad, located a kilometer off the Syrian coast, and then returned. He told Saladin's envoys that he had now been overseas and was thus released from his vows. Guy collected a small army in Tripoli and Antioch, then proceeded south to Tyre. Conrad of Montferrat refused to recognize him as king and barred him from entering the city. Then Guy heeded his brother Amory's advice that when the kings of the west arrived in the Holy Land, it would be much better that they should find you having besieged a city rather than you having been idle. He marched south and besieged Acre. The great struggle for Acre would last for three years and would be one of the greatest epics of the Crusades. As one Christian wrote, if the Ten-Year War made Troy famous, then Acre will certainly win fame, for the whole globe assembled to fight for her. John Hosler, the author of a recent superb study of the siege, notes that fighting men from northern and southern Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa all fought at Acre. Within the city's walls was a powerful garrison of Saladin's soldiers, led by two of his most trusted generals, the eunuch Karakush and Al-Mashtub, whose name meant the Scarred. Encircling Acre was the army of Guy de Lusignan, which would be constantly replenished and reinforced by crusader contingents arriving from Europe. The Franks and crusaders were in turn surrounded by Saladin's field army, which contained contingents from across his great empire. 
the fighting would mix together one of the greatest sieges of the Middle Ages with constant skirmishing and some of the largest pitched battles of the Crusades. While the great struggle for Acre raged, Saladin also had to keep a wary eye on the advance of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who was taking the land route across Anatolia to the Holy Land. The powerful German army posed a fearsome threat, and the Kurdish warlord was compelled to keep considerable forces in northern Syria to guard against its arrival. Then, on June 10, 1190, occurred one of those lucky events that seemed to punctuate Saladin's career. While swimming in the Salaf River, on the border of Syria, Emperor Frederick Barbarossa died. A veteran of the Second Crusade, he was an experienced commander as well as a strong monarch. Deprived of his powerful guidance, the German army largely dissolved. Only a small remnant arrived in the Holy Land. The campaign of the Third Crusade properly began with the arrival of the French and English kings with their armies at Acre in the summer of 1191. These reinforcements of manpower and high-level commanders gave the Christians the decisive edge in the siege. On July 11, 1191, French sappers managed to bring down a long section of the city's walls. The next day, the garrison negotiated surrender terms with the besiegers. The Muslims would release 1,600 Christian captives in their hands, return the true cross, and pay a ransom of 200,000 dinars. Saladin, however, dickered over the fulfillment of these terms, particularly the payment of the ransom. King Richard of England suspected the warlord of delaying so that he could regather his armies. On August 20, 1191, Richard carried out an act of startling exemplary brutality. He massacred the entire Muslim garrison of 2,600 men. A shocked Saladin could only respond in kind by executing all of his Christian captives. By massacring the Acre garrison, Richard the Lionheart demonstrated that he was a dangerous, iron-willed enemy. He also soon proved to be perhaps the finest Christian commander of the entire Crusades. When Philip Augustus of France returned home in August 1191, Richard took charge of the Crusade. On August 25th, he and his army of 10,000 men set off from Acre along the coast of Palestine to attack Jaffa, the port closest to Jerusalem. Richard arrayed his army in the same fighting march formation that King Guy had adopted at Hattin. But unlike at Hattin, Richard had a fleet hovering offshore to provide food and water. Even more importantly, the King of England had the respect of his entire army. The distance from Acre to Jaffa was 128 kilometers. For almost two weeks, Saladin launched relentless attacks on Richard's marching army hoping to wear it down and weaken it as he had the field army of Jerusalem at Hattin. But these attacks seemed to have little effect. Richard's army maintained its formation, kept its discipline, and continued advancing. Finally, on September 7, 1191, Saladin launched a direct assault against Richard's fighting march formation. Richard wanted to time the charge of his knights carefully so that they could destroy his opponents in a single stroke. But his rear guard, manned by the Templars and Hospitallers, came under such heavy Muslim pressure that they charged on their own without waiting for orders. Richard was forced to launch the rest of his knights. Their devastating impact was recorded by Baha al-Din, a Muslim chronicler who was with Saladin's army. The Crusaders' situation worsened still more, and the Muslims thought they had them in their power. 
Eventually, the first detachments of their infantry reached the plantations of Arsuf. Then their cavalry massed together and agreed on a charge, as they feared for their people and thought only a charge would save them. I saw them grouped together in the middle of the foot soldiers. They took their lances and gave a shout as one man. The infantry opened gaps for them, and they charged in unison. One group charged our right wing, another our left, and the third our center. It happened that I was in the center, which took to wholesale flight. My intention was to join the left wing, since it was nearer to me. I reached it after it had been broken utterly, so I thought to join the right wing, but then I saw that it had fled more calamitously than all the rest. Saladin's army was completely routed. After Arsuf, the Crusaders then retook the entire coast of Palestine, from Tyre to Ascalon. Above all, Arsuf demonstrated that the fighting techniques of the Frankish armies based on the fighting march and the charge of the knights, could still win battles, even against the most powerful and effective Muslim armies. As John France points out, the contrast with Hattin was remarkable. There, Guy's army had begun to fall apart in a mere four kilometers of march after Turan, but Richard's men endured 14 days of attacks over 100 kilometers. Richard had carefully taken into account problems of supply, which Guy had not. The contrast in outcomes points to the difference between the commanders and the respect in which they were held. Jerusalem, however, proved beyond even Richard the Lionheart's grasp. The Crusaders were too few and Saladin's army too large and strong for the Third Crusade to capture, and more importantly, hold Jerusalem. After two failed attempts to reach the city from Jaffa in the fall and winter of 1191, Richard entered into negotiations with Saladin. The opening letters of the two leaders demonstrates both sides' deep embrace of their respective doctrines of holy war. Richard wrote, The Muslims and Franks are done for. The land is ruined, ruined utterly at the hands of both sides. Property and lives on both sides are destroyed. Now Jerusalem is the center of our worship, which we shall never renounce, even if there were only one of us left. As for these lands, let them be restored to us what is this side of the Jordan. The Holy Cross, that is a piece of wood that has no value for you, but is important for us, let the Sultan bestow it upon us. Then we can make peace and rest from this constant hardship. Saladin replied, Jerusalem is as much ours as it is yours. Indeed, for us, it is greater than it is for you for it is where our prophet came on his night journey and the gathering place of the angels. Let not the king imagine that we shall give it up, for we are unable to breathe a word of that amongst the Muslims. As for the land, it is ours originally. Your conquest of it was an unexpected accident due to the weakness of the Muslims there at that time. While the war continues, God has not enabled you to build up one stone there. The destruction of the Holy Cross would in our eyes be a great offering to God, but the only reason we are not permitted to go that far is that some more useful benefit might accrue to Islam. In fact, both Richard and Saladin proved to be much more flexible than these letters suggested. The negotiations took a year and was punctuated by further fighting, during which Richard won another notable victory at the Battle of Jaffa on August 5th, 1192. Finally, on September 2nd, 1192, Richard and Saladin concluded the Treaty of Jaffa. 
the kingdom of Jerusalem was resurrected as a coastal strip running from Beirut to Jaffa. Jerusalem itself remained under Muslim control, but Saladin had to allow Christian pilgrims safe passage to and from it. In addition, Richard had wrested Cyprus from its rebel Byzantine governor. The King of England granted the island to Guy de Lusignan in exchange for his agreement to recognize Conrad of Montferrat as King of Jerusalem. The Lusignan-ruled Kingdom of Cyprus was another crusader state. The Battle of Hattin, then, was not a decisive victory. By failing to conquer all of the Palestinian ports, Saladin had left the door open for the Third Crusade, led by the most formidable of all crusader commanders. Although Richard the Lionheart failed to retake Jerusalem itself, he had saved the Franks and resurrected the Crusader kingdom. Hattin inaugurated a century of renewed holy war. The results of the Third Crusade had disappointed many in Europe. During the 13th century, a whole series of further crusades would attempt to recover Jerusalem for Christians. The new crusades were better organized and better financed than ever before thanks to the reforming efforts of Pope Innocent III. He allowed people who could not personally take part in the expeditions to the East to pay for them in exchange for a spiritual reward. Innocent also instituted a regular tax on the clergy. Systematic preaching and new religious ceremonies kept Jerusalem at the forefront of European Christians' minds. The new Crusades used the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Kingdom of Cyprus as bases. They also adopted a new strategy, or rather resurrected an old one. During the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart had considered mounting an attack on Egypt, which he recognized as the foundation of Saladin's power. After Saladin's death in 1193, his massive empire fell apart and became divided among his heirs of the Ayyubid clan. The Ayyubid rulers of Egypt and Syria then fought each other for possession of the whole. These divisions convinced crusaders that they could recover Jerusalem by winning victories on the banks of the Nile. The Fourth Crusade set out to attack Egypt but was diverted by a series of chance events to besiege and take Constantinople in 1204. The Fifth Crusade seized the important Egyptian port of Damietta in 1219. The Egyptian sultan offered to exchange Jerusalem for Damietta, but was refused by the crusaders, who instead advanced on Cairo. The crusade was only finally defeated because the Ayyubids of Egypt and Syria managed to temporarily unite against it. The Egyptian strategy culminated with the Seventh Crusade, or the Crusade of Saint-Louis. A powerful as well as pious monarch, Louis IX of France invaded Egypt with a large army and a strong fleet in 1249. The French crusaders seized Damietta and threatened to capture Cairo before they were defeated by the elite slave soldiers of the Askar of Egypt, the Baria Mamluks. The defeat of Saint-Louis' crusade then initiated the final phase of the crusades and the downfall of the crusader states. Disgusted by the weakness and disunity of the Ayyubids, the Mamluks overthrew their masters and took power in Egypt. The Mamluks were Turks, and they continued to acquire new recruits from their original homelands in the Eurasian steppes. They formed a ruling caste that based its domination and ruthless exploitation of the native Egyptian population on mastery of the traditional skills of the steppe nomad warrior. 
No sooner had the Mamluks established their regime in Egypt that they faced a dire threat from the greatest steppe nomad warriors of all, the Mongols. In 1258, the hordes of Hulegu, grandson of Chinggis Khan, captured and destroyed Baghdad. The last Abbasid caliph was rolled up in a carpet and trampled to death by Mongol horses. Bent on the conquest of the Middle East, the Mongols then entered Syria. However, most of their army soon returned to the steppes following the death of the great Khan Monke. The Mamluks then invaded Syria. The Kingdom of Jerusalem publicly declared its neutrality in the Mamluk-Mongol War. However, the Franks allowed the Mamluks to cross their territories and secretly furnished them with supplies. On September 3, 1260, the Mamluks defeated a small Mongol force at Ain Jalut in the Jezreel Valley in eastern Palestine. The Mamluks portrayed Ain Jalut as the victory that saved Islam from conquest by the pagan Mongols. Afterward, they assumed the mantle of guardians and champions of Sunni Islam against all unbelievers. Under their great sultan Baybars, the Mamluks expanded into Syria, overthrowing the last Ayyubid rulers. They also continued to battle the Ilkhanate Mongols of Iraq and Persia. Yet the Mamluks could also never forget that the Crusader states had provided a base for assaults against Egypt. Baybars and his successors therefore renewed the counter-crusade. They methodically conquered the remaining Frankish strongholds. In 1268, Baybars captured the city of Antioch and massacred its population in the greatest bloodbath of the entire crusading era. The principality of Antioch was destroyed. In 1271, Baybars took Crac de Chevalier, greatest of crusader castles. The last remnant of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the city of Acre, fell in 1291. The victorious Mamluks then destroyed the coastal cities of Palestine in order to prevent future invasions from Europe. The Crusades were over. This concludes Hatin, Episode 3 of the Great Battles in History podcast. My name is Daryl D, and I would like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. As always, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies. Particular thanks go to Sultan Kevin Spooner, Director of the Center, and to Mears Matthew Morden, Matt Baker, Eric Story, and Kyle Falcon. The next episode of the podcast will be on the Battle of Agincourt. I hope you'll join me.